You can grab your copy of the Bible and open up to Mark chapter 14. That's where we are. We're going to be in verses 12 to 26. Steve Turner, a poet, wrote what I think is a hilarious and incisive satirical poem called Creed. It's the name of the poem. I'll I'll read a section of it. The whole thing is available online if you want to read the entire thing. It's kind of a jab at postmodern thinking. I'll read just the middle section of it. He writes, Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting, perhaps, Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. The poem that playfully mocks the postmodern idea that truth is relative, all religions are basically the same, that Jesus is just a good man, like Buddha was a good man, like Gandhi, like Muhammad, and of course like yourself. Many people actually do believe that Christianity and all religions are all essentially the same. I wonder if you've ever believed that in your life. If there at any point has been a time of your life where you believe that all the religions of all the world were just humanity's best attempts to come to understand God, and really, if you boil it down, while they do have little distinctives here and there, they're actually all the same. If you know anything about Christianity, you know that that is not true. Not true that all religions are basically the same, that Jesus is merely a good man like Buddha or Muhammad or you. And if you've been here for the last couple of years, studying through the Gospel of Mark, you've been seeing time and time again that there's something utterly unique about Jesus. That what we see in the Scriptures presents Jesus as uh, in a class of His own, in a category all by Himself. And that Christianity makes claims that no other religion can make. It's unique. And here we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're getting closer to the end. We're in chapter 14, about halfway through chapter 14. And uh, there's only 16 chapters in in the Gospel of Mark, so you know we're, we're toward the end. And all along we've been seeing ways where Jesus demonstrates who He is and His unique character uh, as the divine Son of God who entered into humanity and he, he teaches in a way that no one else could teach. He does miracles in a way that no one else could replicate. He's utterly unique. But the more we get to the closer, closer to the cross, as we look through the years of his ministry and the closer we get to his death, the more you begin to see how 
utterly unique he is. So if you've ever thought, or even if this morning you walked into these doors thinking that this is a religion of many other religions and they all are true in their own way and I just want to grab your attention this morning and I want to help you see Jesus is unlike anyone else. And what we see Him doing in these texts and what we see Him teaching and expressing is going to help us see that Christianity is utterly unique. Okay. Look in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And we're going to read through it. And I want you to pay attention to what these scenes, there's kind of three scenes that we're going to look at. And and I want to get you thinking beforehand as we read, what do these scenes reveal about Jesus Christ? That's what we're trying to do, right? We don't just come up with ideas about Jesus, and if we like the idea, we keep it. If we don't like it, we toss it. We go to the Scriptures, and we let them inform our understanding about who Jesus is. And so here we are in verse 12. Follow along. I'm going to read the whole section. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. He began to be sorrowful. And to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant. It is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I wonder what you picked up about Jesus from these three paragraphs. I want to suggest to you that there's one big idea that is like an umbrella over all these verses that is about the character, the nature of Jesus Christ, and it helps us Understand all that's happening here. The word that I want to suggest to you is the word sovereignty. 
Maybe authority could be another word. But the word sovereignty is a great word that helps us understand a little bit about Jesus and what we learn about him in these passages. I wonder what you think of when you think of the idea of sovereignty. Sovereignty could be used in political language when you're talking about a sovereign state, a state that has its own governance, that doesn't have any other nation over it, a sovereign state. But we're talking about the sovereignty of Jesus, that Jesus is sovereign. And when we're saying that Jesus is sovereign, we're talking about supreme authority, total freedom, absolute power. That's what we mean when we're talking about the authority of Jesus Christ. One theologian, A.W. Pink, we've mentioned him before, he puts it this way, the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact, as well as in name. That he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things working all things after the counsel of his will. Now, I wonder, having just heard that definition of sovereignty and saying that that word is ascribed to Jesus in the verses that we just read, you might be wondering yourself, what? Sovereignty? In those verses? Uh, The sovereignty definition you just read is talking about that none influences him. He is subject to none. He's absolutely independent. He has total freedom. And yet here in the Gospel of Mark, we're reading about a betrayer. Uh, We're going to read about here in a few chapters him being handed over and arrested and killed. Subjected to authorities that will beat him up. Slap him on a cross and kill him. Sovereignty? Doesn't sound sovereign to me. I don't like that kind of sovereignty, some sovereignty that Jesus has. And therein lies the beauty of it all. We are going to see sovereignty here. And I'm going to show you, if you haven't seen it in your first read-through, I I hope that by the end of this you'll come to see that Jesus is sovereign and that this text is actually meant to demonstrate His sovereignty in a variety of ways. We're going to see His sovereignty over His circumstances. We're going to see His sovereignty over judgment. We're going to see His sovereignty over salvation. All of these things. Jesus is demonstrating sovereignty. And I want to start with Jesus is sovereign over circumstances. That's If you're a note taker and you want to write down the headings for the sermon this morning, let's start with this one right here. Jesus is sovereign over circumstances. And we find that in that first paragraph. Let's Look at it again, and we're going to go through the details and kind of unpack it, and I'm going to show you how even this seemingly insignificant paragraph is demonstrating something profound about the nature of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. If you're paying attention, when Hans read that large chunk of Exodus 12, you were, you were listening to the original uh, design for Passover. What, what it was was the, you know, the lamb, right? They would get the Passover lamb. They were supposed to kill the lamb. And on the Passover, when they killed the lamb, that kind of inaugurated a week-long celebration that was the Feast of Unleavened 
bread. And that's what we're looking at this time period. It's about to Jesus, you know, remember he's, he's in Jerusalem. He came in on a Sunday, triumphal entry. It's getting close to the Friday. He'll die on the Friday. But all these people from all over Jerusalem or all over Israel would come to Jerusalem and they all sacrifice their lambs. This was a national holiday. The Jews had been doing this for over a thousand years. And so this is what's happening. It's the first day of unleavened bread where they sacrifice the Passover lamb. His disciples, it says, they came to Jesus. They say, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You see, you could kill the Passover lamb outside of Jerusalem, but you had to, according to tradition, you had to do the Passover meal in Jerusalem. That was part of the deal. And so what would happen is you would come into Jerusalem and there'd be thousands upon thousands of pilgrims that had come from all over and they all be looking for places to do this Passover meal. And you would have to find a spot. And often uh, the Jews, it was kind of tradition that if some traveling group or a family was going to do this meal together, and if you had an extra room, you're kind of obligated to give the room up so that other people who didn't have a room could use your room to to do the meal. And so the disciples are concerned. Where are we going to do it? Where are we going to have this meal? Where are we going to eat the Passover? Because they are not going to do it in Bethany where Lazarus is and Mary and Martha. Remember them? They've been staying out in Bethany with Jesus' friends. Well, they got to do it in Jerusalem. But where are they going to do it? The disciples are concerned. They're a little concerned. Jesus, verse 13, has it all under control. He sent two of his disciples and he gives them clear directions. Uh, Peter and John are the disciples. We're told in the other Gospels that it's them that Jesus sends out. He gives them these directions. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into the city, go into Jerusalem, and there's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. Now, this is something that would have stood out in those days because ordinarily it was a woman's work to carry the jars of water. And if you saw a man carrying a jar of water, it was something that would say, huh, that's interesting. I didn't, you know, it stands out. Jesus had told them, hey, this is what you're going to notice. There's going to be a man carrying a jar of water. He'll meet you. And what you need to do is you follow him. He doesn't tell him to say anything to the guy with the jar of water or, hey, what's next? What's the secret clue? What do I say now? Just follow him. Just follow him. And, and what are you going to do then? You're going to follow him wherever he enters, verse 14, and you're going to enter into a house. There's going to be a master of the house there. And you go to him and you got something you need to say. It says that you're supposed to say, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Okay, so Peter and John were supposed to find the master of the house. They were supposed to ask this question. And Jesus knew, verse 15, that he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. It's going to be already prepared. And there they were, Peter and John, were to prepare the meal, the Passover meal for the disciples. They go, verse 16, they set out, went to the city, found it just as he had told them. And they got to work preparing the meal. Just as he had told them. I want to notice a couple things about this interesting text. First of all, it's interesting that Jesus gives his directions in such a vague way. Uh, why didn't he just say, go to 1259 Jerusalem court, and there's going to be a house on the right, and in there you have a map. He doesn't tell them exactly where to go. It's almost cryptic. It's almost as if he's trying to hide some information from some people. He tells this to, in the hearing of the 12 disciples, 
although he is only telling Peter and John to go, but he gives them these kind of odd directions. Follow this guy, go into here, say these words, get, find the room upstairs, and you go, why is he doing this? Well, many scholars believe that Judas was present at this moment. And Judas, we do know, according to verses 10 and 11 of the same chapter, that he was seeking to arrest and bet- or betray Jesus and hand him over so he could be arrested. And Judas was looking to do it quickly. And Jesus knew that Judas was trying to do that. And so as he's giving direction, many believe that he's giving the directions in such a way that Judas doesn't know where they're going to eat the Passover meal. That he would only find out when they're actually there in the room. So he didn't have any time beforehand to betray him and have that Passover meal interrupted in the middle of it. In other words, Jesus wanted to eat this meal with his disciples. He did not yet want to be handed over because this was important to him. And I also want you to notice a few of the tenses of the words here. Look there in verse 13, when Jesus is giving directions, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water, what's that next word? Will meet you. That sounds like certainty, doesn't it? It, He's not saying, I hope there's the, I hope he's there. Man, I told him to show up. I, I hope he remembers when to be there at the right time. Jesus is saying he's going to be there. Count on it. And then again in, in 15, after they go there and they follow the guy with the jar, they're supposed to go into the master of the house. And verse 15 says, and he will show you a large upper room. It's going to be furnished. You know, when you and I are, are making plans and we start using words like will, you know, I, I will be there or he will be there or this will happen. We are saying that, but we're not exactly sure it's going to happen the way we describe it. We don't know the future. This is why the the book of James tells us it's wise to say, if the Lord wills, we will go here, we will go there, we will do this, we will do that. Why? Because we don't know the future. We can't control the future. And yet when Jesus is talking about this, he doesn't say, it might happen. He doesn't say, I hope the guy's there at the right time. It doesn't say, I hope this is what the master of the house does. He says, this is what will happen. What does this mean about Jesus? It means... That Jesus knows the future. And He is operating with complete control over His circumstances. The language of the disciples there in verse 12, it's almost as if they're a little bit flustered. Oh, where, where are we going to go? How are we going to find a, a place to have the Passover meal? Jesus, did you think this one through? Come on, we don't have a place to go. Where are we going to eat? Jesus has it all completely under control, doesn't He? This is what you're going to do. This is where you're going to go. This is who you're going to talk to. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be a room. I got it all under control. And you could wonder, well, maybe what happened was that on Wednesday of this week, you know, scholars sometimes call it Silent Wednesday because we know what happened on Sunday. We know what happened on Monday. We know what happened on Tuesday. But there's not a lot of information of what happened on Wednesday. So maybe on Wednesday, Jesus went around and organized this whole thing and he talked to the guy he said hey don't let your wife carry the jar that day i want you to carry the jar and uh and he goes to the master of the house and says all right this is what this is the secret code i want you to be aware of so when people come and ask you you can know to give them the upper room you know i don't know if that happened it could have happened on wednesday but what i do know 
is that Jesus absolutely sovereignly orchestrated all these events. That he was absolutely in control. The disciples might be flustered. Jesus is not flustered at all. You don't hear a tremble in his voice and uncertainty at all. He knows exactly what he's doing. Keep in mind, church, why is Jesus here? Why is he, you can even expand the question, why is he on planet earth? Why is he walking around? Why is he in Jerusalem? We know the answer is that he has come to die. Chapter 10, verse 45, he says he has come to live, or sorry, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Since chapter 8, verse 31, he has been making predictions that he would come, that he would die. He's actually making very specific predictions about how he'll be arrested, who he'll be handed over to, and how that will all work out. In other words, listen, church, he's in complete control. He's not being suckered into this. He's not being coerced. He is going to lay his life down voluntarily. John 10, verse 18. He says, no one takes my life from me. You say, well, well, Jesus, I think the Romans are about to take your life from you. They're going to nail you to that cross. They're going to kill you. They will take your life. And Jesus would say, oh, no, 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 no. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. There's no one coercing him to die. He's orchestrating it all so that he will be betrayed when he wants to be betrayed, so that he will die when he wants to die. He is in total control. He is demonstrating a knowledge of the future. He's demonstrating a sovereignty over history. Sovereignty over human events, even down to the details of who will be where and when. You say, how can he do this? He's God, church. He is the living God become a man. He wrote the story of human history. He is the author of it all. He's the one who knows the beginning from the end. Of course he knows who will be where and when. He has planned it all out in eternity past, and now he's in his own creation. Jesus is God. We know this because of his knowledge of the future and because of the demonstration of his sovereignty in these verses. Consider this. This is... This is a core doctrine of Christianity. That the God who made us, the God who rules us, the God who will one day judge us, has entered into His creation in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we call the incarnation. Jesus is God. He is not a Buddha. He is not a Muhammad. He is not just a good teacher. He is God who has come to lay His life down, to make atonement for the sins of His people. God would do this. So they go out, Peter and John, they prepare the Passover meal. And in that little paragraph, we see that Jesus is sovereign over 
circumstances. Think of your own life. If Jesus is sovereign over these circumstances here in the text, do you believe that Jesus is sovereign over the circumstances of your life? The things you find yourself going through now. The painful things. The good things. Do you see it all as given to you from a sovereign Savior who is working all things out for His glory and your good? We're going to see this even more clearly as we go on because in this next section we see that Jesus, here's our second point, is sovereign over evil. He is not only sovereign over just general circumstances, we see in our next paragraph that He's sovereign over evil itself. He has authority over wickedness. Watch this. Verse 17. When it was evening, He came with the twelve. Peter and John had set the table up. It's all ready to go. And now the twelve, the rest, all join Him and Jesus is there. And as they were reclining at table, you might have in your mind Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. And I would just tell you that this is not how they actually did it. They would recline at a table. They would lay on their side. They would prop themselves up with their hand on their elbow. They're eating this Passover meal. Remember, they would cook the lamb. They would have wine. They would have bread, unleavened bread. And they'd be reclining around. They'd be eating. Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, had washed the disciples' feet already. An act of incredible service, and love, and humility. And as they're reclining at table and eating, Jesus interrupts this, this ordinary Jewish meal. I mean, this would have been something they had done all their lives. They were all Jewish men. They had known the Passover. They had done this a bunch of times all their life. And now Jesus interrupts it with the statement, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. That would have horrified them. Uh, They would have been stunned by this revelation. Consider it. They had been on Tuesday out in the temple courts. And Jesus had been preaching, and just about every one of Jesus' enemies had come to confront him about something the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, even the Romans had their eye on him. He had all kinds of enemies. And here Jesus is saying that it's one of the twelve? It's one of us? I thought it would be one of the chief priests that would swoop in and take you. I thought maybe the Romans would put an end to your ministry. It's going to be one of us? They all start... Asking him about it. Whoa, 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 whoa. One of us, they began, began to be sorrowful. Verse 19 says, it says that they began to say to him one after another, is it I? Am I going to be the one to hand over the Son of God? And look at his statement. Verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the twelve. He, he doesn't say who yet. It's one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. Pause. 
He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. This is what he always does in Mark. It's often that he is calling himself the Son of Man. It's a title he uses for himself. And he's describing the upcoming betrayal that he's going to experience. And he says about it, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Pause and think about this. He, he's saying that his betrayal, arrest, his beatings, and his death is all according to God's eternal plan. That it was all written down in the Scriptures. I want you to feel attention when we read this. You have to feel this to understand. Jesus is saying the worst sin that could ever be committed. The the most despicable crime that a person could ever commit the betrayal of the perfectly innocent Son of God, that sin was planned. That wickedness was ordained. That crime was predicted. And that it was written down all throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you a few samples. The Old Testament predicted that Jesus would be rejected by evil men. Psalm 118, verse 22. The Old Testament predicted that Jesus would be hated. Psalm 35, 19. It predicted that the disciples would all abandon Jesus in the time of His trial. Zechariah 13, 7. It predicted that Jesus would be pierced, but that not a bone would be broken in His body. Zechariah 12, verse 10. It predicted that He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It's all in the Old Testament. In other words, listen to this, it's always been part of God's eternal plan that His Son be murdered. And that the greatest sin ever committed in human history was ordained by God. At the same time, Judas was really guilty of real evil. What do you learn from this? We're going to unpack this. But I want you to feel the tension. Are you feeling it yet? Was it according to God's plan that Jesus suffered and died? Or was it according, or was it because of evil men? I want you to feel this a little more sharply. Isaiah 53, verse 6. I'll just read it to you. And verse 10, verse 6 says, speaking of the, the prophesying forward to the death of Christ, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, laid on Christ, the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 10, watch this, feel this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Father, put Him, the Son, to grief. The Lord crushed the Messiah. God the Father crushed the Son. It is explicit that behind the betrayal, behind the wickedness of Judas, behind the devilry of the crowds and the mobs and the Romans, there is the invisible hand of a sovereign God 
orchestrating all of these events so that through the wickedness and even the most heinous crimes that a human being could commit, God is going to work in and through that for the greatest possible glory. The redemption of His people for the glory of His Son. Good from evil. Hear this. God ordained the wickedness that put His own Son on the cross. If you don't believe this or you're you're struggling with this, you say, how could this work? I just want to present to you, this is the way that the Bible talks about wickedness and sinfulness in, in relation to sovereignty. The Bible does this all the time, and I could actually show you many passages that demonstrate that humans are, are, are genuinely guilty for the sins they commit, and they will be held accountable for them. But also, in the wickedness and over the wickedness is a sovereign God who has ordained all things for His glory and for the good of His people. When Peter, in Acts chapter 2, gets up to preach to a bunch of Jews, many of them might have been there at the crucifixion, Peter says to them, listen to this, follow the language, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who put Jesus on the cross? Well, according to Peter, it's the definite plan and it's the foreknowledge of God. God put his son on the cross. Then he goes on to say, speaking to those Jews, you crucified him. You killed him. By the hands of lawless men, he was crucified. Understand that over even the most wicked of human acts is a sovereign God who has ordained even the worst possible events in human history to accomplish that which will bring Him glory and that which will bring good to His people. I want you to make this very practical. Think about wickedness that you've experienced. Think about tragedies, crimes you've gone through. Wickedness in the world and the wickedness done to you, the evil you've experienced. There is enough evil in the world to make a stone weep, isn't there? We live in a hard world. And if it's true that the worst of all sins, what Judas did, was ordained by God to bring glory to Christ and to accomplish the salvation of His people, then isn't it also true that the wickedness you've seen and you felt and the evil that touched your life was ordained by a sovereign God for His glory and for your good. I can't answer how in all the various ways this plays out. All we can do is humble ourselves before a sovereign God and say, you are God and I am not and I dare not shake my fist at Him. How dare us get angry with a good God who does things that we couldn't possibly understand with our little brains. He is sovereign over human wickedness. He is sovereign over evil. Now there are some truths that comfort you like a pillow. God is my shepherd. Oh, I love that. I can lay my head on that pillow at night. And there are some truths that comfort you like a steel beam. 
Now you laugh, but if you're driving over a huge chasm and you're on a bridge, the biggest earthquake that has ever shaken the world is striking you right in that moment you're on that bridge. I'll tell you what, you'll be very comforted by the reality of steel beams. You'll be thankful that steel beams exist. The same is true when you suffer and you face real evil, you will be comforted by the sovereignty of God over that evil. It does no good to say God had nothing to do with this. That will take away any comfort you hope to get out of the situation. But to know, just as this is being demonstrated here, that Jesus is over it, it is planned, He's sovereign, will bring you rest. It won't always bring you answers, but it will comfort you. Virgin put it this way, there's no attribute more comforting to His children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe sovereignty has ordained their afflictions. Sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. Do you really, honestly, deeply believe that sovereignty has ordained your afflictions? Rest there, because sovereignty overrules and sanctifies them as well. Now we go on to see that he's not only sovereign over Judas when he says there, or sorry, over the betrayal there. Look at this. The finishing of verse 21. It says that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, demonstrating that this is all part of the plan of God. Then he says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Pronouncing of a curse upon Judas. Woe to that man. See, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, it by no means makes human decisions irrelevant. Judas is not a robot. He wanted money. Remember? He preferred money to his Savior. And he was guilty of that sin. And Jesus pronounces judgment on him. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And then look at this next sentence. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The third point in our outline is that Jesus is sovereign over judgment. Jesus is sovereign in judgment. This is a stunning declarative statement. He doesn't say, I think it would be, it's going to be really bad for Judas. He doesn't say it's probable that Judas will be in hell. He says it with absolute certainty like he's a judge. He knows that it would have been better for Judas if Judas had never been born. Non-existence would have been preferable to existence in Judas's case. Church, this means there is a hell and that people will go there. Judas will be there. Jesus speaks as a judge. He's a sovereign judge. This sentence stabs, doesn't it? It stabs. It stabs right at the heart of all man-centered thinking. If we have come to think that the highest good in the universe is 
is human flourishing and human goodness and that good things happen to human beings, then this sentence slaps us in the face. Jesus is implying that Judas' good is not the ultimate point of the universe. And it implies that your good and my good is not the ultimate point of the universe. The reality of hell itself suggests that humanity's good is not the highest good. Do you see that? Humanity's good is not the highest good. There is something more important than humans being happy forever. You know what it is? The greatest good in the universe is the glory of God. We, listen, this is so hard for us. We don't like this truth, but we got—we have to humble ourselves and believe this. We're not the center of the universe. We're not the point. God is not there to be a cosmic butler and meet all human needs. We were made for Him. For His glory. To bring Him praise. That's why we exist. And listen to this. God created the universe so that He will get glory. He will, watch this, He will get glory demonstrating the abundance of mercy in redeeming His people. And He will get glory demonstrating the justice of His wrath upon the Judases of the world turn away from Christ and reject the Gospel. In either case, in salvation and in judgment, God is glorified because He is doing that which is righteous and good. Think ahead of, of Revelation 19, where the wicked civilizations of the world, the wicked of the world are being judged in final judgment. And you get a little picture of what's going on in the, the heavenly realms with the angels. Are the angels all sad when God meets out His judgment on the wicked? Are they morose and unhappy? God, why are you doing this? You know what they do? All of heaven rejoices when God judges the wicked. Why? Because even in His judgments, He is just. Even as He condemns the wicked, He is demonstrating His perfect, holy goodness. And He is demonstrating that He is the center of all the universe. We are not... We exist for Him. We will either be used to demonstrate the glories of His grace, or we in judgment will demonstrate the justice of His wrath. But all people everywhere will show that God is glorious. And it's all about that. It is not about human flourishing. But isn't it amazing that God, though God does not exist for our good, God is invites us into His overflowing goodness. This is incredible. Before we move on to reflect on that a little more deeply, I just want to sit in this a little bit longer. 
clear your mind and think about this. Just think of this closely. That, that last sentence that we've been thinking about, what Jesus says about Judas. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Church, that's true of all of us if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. It would be better that we never came into this world because of the sufferings that will come if we didn't have a Savior. God in His abundant, overflowing mercy, He entered in to this fallen creation that He might bring mercy and grace and forgiveness and salvation to all His people. And this is so incredible. We have to say it. I feel it's my solemn duty to say that if you're not a Christian, if you haven't turned from sin and turned from self-righteousness and turned from just trying to live on your own for yourself, and you reject Jesus this morning, and you reject Him next week and next year and all the way up to the time you go to die, I have to say that the fate that is Judas's is yours as well. That in eternity future, you will wish that you were never in existence. You'll be in such suffering that you will wish that you were never born. And there will be no way for you to unmake yourself. You don't have to go there. Because God has come to us in Christ. And that He has given Himself for us. And that He has made a way. And that He calls Himself a door. That any might enter through. If you have the eyes of faith, that you could come. And He freely, generously, and lavishly pours out grace. Let's look at this last part. It's the sovereignty of Jesus in salvation. We're going to talk about this more next week and we go into more the reality of the Lord's Supper. I just want to point you to verse 22. It says, as they were eating, they took bread and after blessing it, this would have been an ordinary way to do the Passover. They've probably all been jumbled up a little bit because of what Jesus has just said about one being a betrayer. They would have done this all their lives, and the blessing there mentioned in verse 22 was something they said at all the meals. It was a common Jewish traditional blessing. They would have said, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings bread from the earth. They all would have done that. It was very ordinary up to that point. And then Jesus throws a curveball. He takes the bread. Okay? They, they've done this all their lives, 30 plus years of doing Passover. And now he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. Uh, we don't understand how striking that would have been to the disciples. Because we, we say this all the time when we take communion. We, we go, yeah, I know what that means. It says, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks to them, they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This would have made the disciples hold their breath. What are you meaning to say that? Uh, think think with me. Who instituted the Passover meal? I'll tell you. Yahweh, the, the one true God of Israel. Who has authority over the Passover meal? Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. It's about Him. 
It's about his covenant faithfulness. It's about his redemption out of Egypt. It's about his salvation that he gave to Israel out of the bondage of slavery. It's all about Yahweh. And Jesus shows up and he takes the bread, he takes the cup and he goes, this is about me. I heard one kind of funny illustration. Imagine going to a uh, a wedding and the best man gets up to give his speech and he takes that microphone. And he goes, hey, it's actually my birthday today. So let me tell you all about me. You know, here's what I want for my birthday. And here's when I was born. It's not about him. It's not supposed to be about him. What is Jesus doing? Taking the microphone, as it were, and saying, hey, this is all about me. He's actually doing exactly what that meal was designed for from the beginning. It was about Yahweh, yes. And what Jesus is doing when He takes authority over the meal and starts saying, it's about me, what's He doing? He's saying, I am your God. I have authority. And this this meal that you've been celebrating for over a thousand years... Every year taking a lamb and slaughtering it. And every year taking the bread and taking the cup. Every year you're doing this has been essentially a stage was being built. And here in this moment, Jesus steps onto the stage and he says, it's all about me. All the lambs that were slain were pointing to me. All the blood that was spilled pointing to me. All those cups that you drank, all pointing to me. It's all about me. I am your God. Israel. I am your God. I have come in and I have come to, what does he say he's coming to do? He is coming to be broken. He has come to pour out his blood. The God who made them and rescued them all those years ago in Egypt has come to this little room in Jerusalem. And he's saying, I have come to die for you to pour out my blood. So that you don't have to suffer the judgment you deserve. I will die in your place. I will pay for your sins. My body will be broken. My blood will be shed and it will cleanse you. And you will be free. And the covenant that I give you, this promise that I give you, this unbreakable promise is sealed in my blood at the cross. It's all about Jesus Christ. He makes it about Himself. Verse 24, His life will be poured out for many. What this means is that the sins that we've committed, God requires payment. But God enters into the world to take that payment upon Himself. Dies in the place of His people. He takes their sins upon Himself. He takes their guilt upon Himself. He takes their shame upon Himself. He's beat up. He's slaughtered like a lamb. And by His death, we can be forgiven our sins. We are saved from God because He is righteously angry with all sin. And we are saved by God Because He comes to take the punishment He demands. And we are saved for God. That He might receive all the glory due His name. You want your heart to soar in worship? Think about what this meal represents.
Think about that cross where the holiness of God is demonstrated. He takes sin seriously. It must be punished. But think how much His love is displayed at that cross. Gaze at it. If you don't love Jesus, if you have a hard time having an affection for Jesus, let me implore you this week to spend time thinking about the cross. The cross. Where would we be without the cross, church? Where would we be? And how could you not love a Savior who is dangling on that cross so that you don't have to go to hell for all eternity? He loved Jesus. He has loved us perfectly and the love we give Him in return is nothing compared to the love He's poured out on us. He's sovereign. He didn't have to do any of this. He would have been right and just to condemn us with our sins. But in His glorious mercy and grace, He came. He orchestrated all circumstances. He was sovereign over every evil event. He was sovereign to declare His power to judge. And He is sovereign to dispense salvation. And if you are not sure where you stand with the living God, let me tell you that Jesus has swung open the gates of paradise that you can come in by faith. The death of Christ means that you're welcome to come should you believe. Should you repent? Should you look away from all other hopes and look to Christ and Christ alone? And what this does for us, church, he says, he's not going to drink again. He's talking about the fruit of the vine until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. What does that do? Our hearts soar forward to that glorious day when we're with Christ in the kingdom at that feast with Jesus, enjoying a meal with Him. We are caught up in wonder, love, and praise. Looking back at what Jesus has done and looking forward to what He brings. Church, is He worthy? He is worthy. He is worthy. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray that as we wrap up this morning that You would draw lost, confused sinners to Yourself. Even now, You would grant them faith and repentance. That even now, You would help them to see Your immense love. That even now, that they would come gladly to receive the free gift of salvation You offer. Pray that we who have been saved from an eternity without You would rejoice from the heart not just now. All our lives would be marked with great rejoicing because You have overcome Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.